so good to be here. I love this church family so much. I, I love the leadership of this church. It is, uh, you know, I, I know them personally. I don't just know them in, in ministry. I know them personally. I stay in their home when I come, and our, my children are friends with their children. And one thing I love about this team is how unified they are. And their unity births oil in, in this family. Do you know that? The unity of, of the men and women of God birthed the oil of the Holy Spirit in the church, and that's happening here, and I, I love that so much. They are, your leadership team, your staff here, they, they carry the truth of God inside of them, but they carry it packaged in incredible love. Do you realize that? I, I sometimes, I need to work on the love. I've got the truth, you know, but I, Jimmy tells me often, hey, you need to work on the love, work on the love. But I, I just, I always feel so loved when I come here and it's been amazing to see so many of you. I recognize so many faces now and just watching you grow with God over the years. It's so powerful, such a privilege to watch God working in your life. Did you enjoy Jimmy last night? Right, maybe enjoy is the wrong word, I'm not sure. <laughs> Did you meet with God as Jimmy spoke last night? It was, I, I was sending pictures afterwards to my wife. I, I took three pictures and I sent all of them to my wife. The first one was of Jimmy laying on his face during his talk. And I, I took that picture and I said, this is Jimmy during his talk. The second one was of Jimmy laying on his face during ministry response time. And I said, honey, this is Jimmy during ministry response time. The third one was when Travis was closing World Mandate and Jimmy was laying on his face on the stage. And I said, yeah, this is Travis closing World Mandate. It was just such a beautiful picture of Jesus. And I, I, love, I love Jimmy so much. I'm so grateful for these years. And some of you, maybe that's the first time you've ever heard of him. And some of you have had the privilege of hearing him over and over again. One thing I love about Jimmy is that he's on fire. He is a man on fire for God. And, and as the song goes, a man on fire doesn't care what he looks like. A man on fire doesn't care what he sounds like. He's on fire. And we have this great privilege of being a part of the Antioch movement where these founders and leaders made a decision to follow Jesus years ago and they're making that same decision today. They're on fire for Jesus. It's the same message, it's the same Jesus. And I've been around long enough to see different leaders try to paint different pictures to, to play into the itching ears of a generation. It's not, so with, it's not so with our leadership here. Our leadership is on fire for Jesus and they can't change the message because they're on fire. He set them on fire and, and I, I'm so grateful. Jimmy, thank you for being on fire and for, for staying on fire and for going, going before us. I, a uh, little bit of my story, I was born in 1981. I know, you've been saying 41 years, and I was like, oh, that's how long I've been alive. I was born in 1981, and then I was, uh, I, I was actually born again in 2003. And, and I'm not sure we think about it that way enough. Becoming a follower of Jesus isn't an agreement to some set of ideas. It's not, a, it's not a contract that you sign. It's not like a mental assent 
to something, it is a transformation that happens in us, in our spiritual, the essence of who we are being. It's a transformation. I was born again in 2003. I received the love I received the death, I received the sacrifice of Jesus to pay the penalty for all of my wrongdoing, not just so that I could sign a contract and live a set of ideals, but so that I could become an entirely new person, so that I could be born again. And after I was born again, I had to learn how to live. I, I had to learn how to, well, crawl, really. And, 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 how to, and then how to slowly walk. And I had to learn how to eat. And I learned, had to learn how to drink. And I, I had to learn how to do with, with my, I had, I had to learn what to do with my poop. I had to learn. Like again, I was, I was born. I was born again. And, and for me, that happened at 21 years old. In, in 2003, I was uh, the quick version. I was, I was by myself um, backpacking around the world. I had dropped out of college. I was, I was doing the like, who am I? Who am I? And what is this world? And I, I left everything and I didn't have a cell phone. I had a, all I had was a guidebook. Do you guys know what a guidebook is? That's all I had. That was like my lifeline. My passport and my guidebook were like my life. I had no phone. If I wanted a phone, I had to use a pay phone. If I wanted internet, I had to go to an internet cafe. I was, I was removed. And in that place of being removed, I was searching for who I was and searching for what the world was. And, and it was, I found it to be, um, I found it to be quite difficult out there by myself. I, I found it to be quite lonely. And I, I kept doing what I'd been doing for years, which was numbing myself with substances and, and, and sex and, and, and trying to find some kind of intimacy, trying to find some kind of purpose. But I just found myself alone. And, and three months in, I was, I was gone for a year. Um, the, the first time I went out, I was gone for a year. And, and three months into that, I, I was alone. I, I loved how Jimmy said that last night. He, he was alone and he found that God was with him. I was, I was alone and I was desperate. I was, I was as bottom as I had ever been. I was rock bottom. And, and quite literally by myself on a boat in the Aegean Sea, I was alone. And someone came up to me whom I'd never met before and they asked me two questions. They said, do you speak English? And I said, yes, I do. And then he said, do you believe in Jesus? And I had, I had grown up in San Antonio, Texas where it's like it was cultural to be a Christian. My answer to this person was, sure, yeah, I think so. But this was a man on fire. And his response to me was, there is no I think so. Jesus is Lord, and he's either the Lord of your life or he's not. And he painted this reality, this picture that I had never been painted before, this, this reality that Jesus is Lord. And there is no, I, I think he's Lord. He's Lord on Sundays and sometimes Mondays and at camp and in these moments. Some, it, no, he's either Lord or he's not. And, and this person led me through receiving Jesus and then prayed for me and prophesied over my life and then sent me on my way and said, get a Bible and read it and start talking with God. And so I got a Bible and I started reading it and I started 
talking with God. And so I had nine more months of being completely removed with a guidebook and a passport and a Bible. <laughs> and it changed everything. It changed everything. It was a slow process. I had to learn to crawl and I had to learn to walk. I was in a process with God of being transformed. Side note, I am so in favor of just cold call evangelism. I don't like it, but I love it. It, cha it changed my life. This person who was willing to come up to me at my rock bottom moment and share Jesus with me. Are you willing to share Jesus with the people around you? Are you willing to look for people at rock bottom and share Jesus? You know, I have, I have family members and friends that are desperate in life, all sorts of addictions, all sorts of marriage problems and children problems and all, all sorts of, of chronic issues in their life and they live in different cities and I can't be with them. So you know what I do? I pray for them. You know what I pray? I pray that they'd meet you. I have a friend in Phoenix. He's a brain surgeon. His office is actually right up the road from here. He walked away from the Lord 20 years ago. You know what I pray for him? I pray that he'd meet you. I pray that you would be the answer to the prayer that's really in the heart of Jesus, that my friend would hear and receive a revelation of Jesus. Well, now I'm, gosh, I'm all cleaned up. I, when, I, when I met Jesus, I had hair, you know, down to here, and I had like two pairs of clothes to my name, and I was, I was that guy. And now, gosh, I, I got married, praise God, and I, I've got four uh, children. The oldest is 11, and, and the youngest is six, and we're this little clan uh, living in, in Seattle. And and you know what? That, that was 20 years ago. It's, it's actually now, it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. This statement, Jesus is the Lord. This statement doesn't seem to fit in our whole new world. We, we, we live in a culture now. I want you to just think with me for a few minutes. We, we live in a culture now that doesn't believe in transcendent truth. What we promote now is your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth and their truth and that group's truth. And in today's culture, the idea of transcendent truth is not only forgotten or meaningless, but it's dangerous. We live in a culture now where the greatest evil would be for me to disagree with your truth. If, if I believe in a transcendent truth, if I, if I believe in a truth that is applicable for all humans, in today's culture, I'm a dangerous fringe, at least, at least in Seattle, maybe not here. Maybe not here. Morality is a personal preference in today's world. 
the Joshua 24 moment where Joshua stands before God's people and he says, choose this day whom you will serve, those other gods or the one true God, um, that speech wouldn't be given anymore. Today, it would be something like, um, choose for yourself how you will rule as God. <laughs> Our culture's making you into a God, me into a God. We, we live in a Marvel culture. You, you, you can be your own God, you can have your own planet, you can have your own set of moral preferences. Just don't offend anybody else's. In this new world, we, the church, get the privilege of seeing God, the one true God, work in new ways. We get the joy of being unpopular. We get the privilege of being seen as, as dangerous. We, we get the pleasure of being countercultural. We get the warm fuzzies that come along with being laughed at and mocked and pointed at. You, you don't seem excited. This is very exciting. This is very exciting. This is, this is Acts 541. This is the moment when the apostles had been brought in before the council and beaten for their faith. And you know what it says when they left? In Acts 5.41, it says, the apostles left the council rejoicing. Rejoicing. Why? It says, because they were counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. Oh, don't, don't make the mistake of having it upside down. Where, where you think like the greatest joy in the Christian life is being popular, famous, celebrated, liked, adored. No, 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 that's not the greatest joy. The greatest joy is when we get to suffer. I'm not sure you're convinced. <laughs> our, our house uh, in Seattle, Seattle's very different from Phoenix. Um, in just about every way, I, 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 try to, I try to bring my son with me um, whenever I come down here. This is his third time to Phoenix, and he loves it here. He's like, Dad, there's so much space. There's so much sunlight. Like, ev everybody wants to do sports and run around. Like, there's cul-de-sacs here, Dad. Like, he just, it's amazing. He loves it so much. Seattle's very very different. We have this thing in Seattle called rain. It's, it's quite different. Imagine with me, if you will, water <laughs> falling from the sky <laughs> for days and days and days. And if you pull up Seattle weather right now, what you will see in the next 10 day forecast is this water in abundance falling from the sky. I love Seattle and I love Phoenix. It's refreshing to be here. And I live in a house that is 99 years old. We bought this house. It turns 100 next year. So pumped. We're going to have a huge party. I, I bet my house is older than your house, most of you. Is that, would that be a good guess? I bet my house is older than your house. And uh, one thing that you have to remember is that my house has stood for almost 100 years in the midst of consistent downpours, winds, floods. My house has stood, not just in the bright, sunny Phoenix climate, my house has stood with torrential downpour for days and days and years 
years and years, and it's still standing today. We live in it. It's awesome. We own it. We, it's worth over a million dollars. It's a, it's a hundred years old, and it's worth over a million dollars. It's just, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Seattle uh, rains so much because it's on the Puget Sound and then it's backed up against the Cascade Mountain Range. And so what happens is these storms come in and they just get stuck. And so it just rains and rains and rains and rains. My house has stood the test of time. Do you know why it's made it? Do you know why it's stood so long? Good foundation. We take our foundations really seriously in Seattle because the ground is really soggy in Seattle all the time. And so if you want your house to last a year or 10 years or let alone 100 years, you need a really solid foundation. And I just believe that's, uh, that's the word of the Lord for you this morning. My goodness. Phoenix is different from Seattle, but my conviction is that Seattle culturally is a picture of what's to come culturally here in Phoenix. It may not start raining with the weather patterns, but the winds and the rains of the culture are coming. There's a storm coming. And my hope for you, my word for you this morning is that your foundation would be right, would be true, would be laid again in Jesus' name. Jesus talked about this. Jesus, what I, one thing I love about Jesus is he's so honest. He just told us the truth. He didn't tell us it was gonna be all easy ponies and roses. He told us the truth. And in Matthew 7, this is what he says, verse 24, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. God's building something here that's meant to last. It's even meant to outlast you. Hundreds of years. His question for us this morning, what are you building on? What are you building on? What foundation is, is really being laid? And so the, the two questions we have to, to ask this morning is, okay, what are the winds and the rain? And, and what is it that, that are these words of Jesus that we're to build on? What are the winds and the rain and what are the words? And so the winds and the rain, I, I believe one of the most powerful storms happening in our culture right now is, is a buzzword. Maybe you know this word. It's, it's this idea of deconstruction. Do you know deconstruction? Deconstruction 
is a popular form of wind and rain in our culture right now. And I want to just, I want to start by defining deconstruction and talking about what's really positive about it. Deconstruction means to take apart something that has been built incorrectly. That's what I mean by deconstruction. To take apart something that's been built incorrectly with the hope of rebuilding it, making it right, making it better. And deconstruction can be a really good thing. Deconstruction is a really good thing when you're, when you're using scripture as the foundation to build on. Oh, this is so good. This is, we, we know this in our own life. When, when, Cause we're all a mess. We all, by the way, we all need deconstruction. We need it. There was an original build that you didn't have much to do with. God and whoever raised you allowed for, set in motion this original build that is you. And at some age, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 18, maybe it's 21, at some point, you begin to realize you're a mess and you need some deconstruction. You need some deconstruction. And so things have an opportunity to come completely apart, sometimes knock the whole thing down. And that's a really good thing as long as the foundation is the word of God. If the foundation is the word of God, then something beautiful, something lasting can be built. I think about my own life of deconstruction. One, one example, I was on this journey of walking and learning what it meant to follow Jesus, and I was sitting at a, a coffee shop on the other side of the world, and I was doing what that person had told me. I was reading my Bible, and I got to Galatians 1.10. Now, I had been raised in a culture where really the highest goal, the highest good was to please people. If people think I'm awesome, I'm awesome. If people think I'm doing good, I'm doing good. If people like me, then I'm likable. Like the, the highest goal in, in my culture growing up was pleasing others. And then I got to Galatians 1.10. And in Galatians 1.10, Paul writes, am I now trying to win the approval of others or am I trying to win the approval of God? And then he says, if I'm still trying to please people, I don't belong to Jesus. And I read that and I was like, oh. It was like an entire wing of my house got kicked out, boom, bulldozed. This whole thing that had been built in you about pleasing others, this is not of the Lord. You belong to me, you belong to me. Am I now trying to please others or am I trying to please Jesus? If I'm still trying to please others, I don't belong to Jesus. That was deconstruction. Then I was able to see a rebuild happen where I'm a servant of one. I belong to one. I'm free. I'm not living for the pleasures of others. I'm not living for the pleasings or the praisings of men or women. I'm living for one, the one who loves me. Now that's deconstruction. That's deconstruction. Deconstruction has been powerful in our, in our history. The, the reformers, that was deconstruction. Slavery being abolished, that was deconstruction. That was looking at an injustice that much of the church was supporting and saying, no, that's not what the Bible says. We can't build on some cultural practice that's helping our economy. We have to build on the word of God. And so that led to slavery being abolished. Heresy in the church is exposed when righteous deconstruction is happening. We need deconstruction. It'll be a part of every generation unto the glory of God. Deconstruction's really good as long as the foundation 
is the word of God. Deconstruction is an entirely different thing when the foundation is not the word of God. And this is the twist. This is the twist. This is the subversive plan of the enemy. This idea that things are built incorrectly. Changes need to be happening. You've been built incorrectly. The original build was all wrong. Here, take up the foundation and lay another foundation. Lay another foundation. There's a, a school in Seattle. I, I'm not going to name it, but you, you might recognize it. It's a theology school, and, and it's, a, it's a counseling school, and it's quite famous. And over the last 10 years or so, we've seen people from all over the country move to Seattle to go to this school. And we've had at least 10, I remember 10 names of people who came to our church. When they moved to Seattle, they found our church, they, they joined our church, and they said, oh, I moved here to go to this school. And what this school intentionally does, it's a three-year program. What they intentionally do the first year is they, they deconstruct you. And there are videos on their website about what this is and how this works. And this is what they say. We are going to seek to tear apart everything that has been built incorrectly in your life. But what they, what they don't do, they used to do it, but they've been subverted what they don't do any longer is give people any ground to stand on when the program's over. They tear up the foundation. They tell trauma stories and they tell church failure stories and they tell fallen pastor stories and they tell abuse stories and they expose all of the real issues and problems that happen even inside the Christian life. And they tear it all down and they rip it all up, including the foundation. And instead they say, you decide what's right. You decide what's true. And we've had 10 of these students come to our church and join this school. Eight of the 10 in the last 10 years, eight of the 10 have completely walked away from the Lord. They came from Christian homes where there was an original build, believing in God, believing in the Bible. They're left wandering at the end of a three-year program, completely deconstructed with with a Play-Doh foundation. (laughs) We have one that's made it. (laughs) She loves Jesus. She's still a part of the church. We have one that's in the school right now. His name's Noah. I'm believing God for him. And I've now got to the habit of when I meet this person, whoever it is, and they're new, and they say, I moved here to do this school, I put my hand on their shoulder, and I say, no deconstruction in Jesus' name. (laughs) In Jesus' name, you'll make it. You'll make it. And and most don't. (laughs) Most don't. The the Wesleyan movement founded by John Wesley created this framework for, actually for us, like how how to make it through cultural transitions, how to make it through personal challenges. How do we live in the light of all the wind and the rain? And John Wesley created this framework and it's it's a layer of foundations from which to interpret the world from. And the bottom foundation, the base, according to the Wesleyan movement was scripture, the Bible, the word of God. On top of scripture was church tradition. What has the church always believed? Surely these aren't new questions. What has the church always believed? What, what, what does the Apostles' Creed say? What, what, what has the church historically said? On top of church tradition is, is reason. Does this make sense? Like, is this logical? How does this 
balance with what we're learning as we're growing in technology and understanding of the world. And then at the tippy top, the top, what do I personally feel and experience? What is my own interpretation of this? I think it's brilliant. I love it. Do you know what, what we've done though now in, in our culture? We have completely turned it on its head. We now live in a postmodern Christian culture, at, at least in Seattle. I can't speak for Phoenix. Where it's completely flipped on its head. Where the primary, the primary question we're asking, like the foundation of our interpretation of ourselves and the world and all the things going around, the primary foundation is my feelings and my experience. On top of my feelings and my experience, I'll, I'll wonder, does this even make sense? What's logical? What, is, you know, what do the science books say? What, what does psychology say? What, like, and then on top of reason, it would be, oh, well, what do other churches think? What, what is the church traditionally thought? I wonder what errors they've made in history that we can make right. And, and at the very tippy, tippy top, I wonder if the Bible even says anything about this. And as I talk with people about real heart challenges, problems in the world, problems in people's lives, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or whether it's a communication like this, I see these filters. It's already happening in this room with some of you. We're, we're making these statements out of scripture and your first interpretation is, I don't know if I feel like that's true. Yes. Or that hasn't really been, that hasn't really been my experience. Or I wonder what my, I remember reading my psychology, I wonder what my psychology book said. Or is this church, what are other churches? Is this like what all churches, I wonder? And then at the very, you might have like a passing thought. Does the Bible really say that? I don't know. Guys, this is, this is where we live now. This is where we live. What's the problem with feelings being your foundation? What's the problem? What's wrong with that? Big problem. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. A uh, few things we could just think about, like in a second. Feelings change constantly. I'm constantly changing how I feel about any given thing, including about you. I kind of liked you at the beginning. Now I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I feel about you right now. Feelings change constantly. They change based on what we eat. They change based on how much sunlight we get. They change based on what we listen to or what we watch. I mean, our feelings can get sabotaged by music, by harmonies, right? You know this. It's like, oh, I kind of, I, I, think, I, I think I'm in love with you. And it's like, no, I'm not. I just, it's a nice song. It's just a nice song. And I, I'm, <laughs> suddenly I'm having like, thought maybe you're the one. And I, I don't know. I, Feelings change all the time. Feelings aren't a good foundation. Now, feelings are wonderful. They're so important. They play a vital role in our life, but they don't play a foundational role in our life. We're building our houses on Play-Doh. <laughs> it's not just that our feelings change constantly. It's also that when feelings are our foundation, our relationships become strained, difficult, even, even violent. Our, our relationships become shallow and, and selfish when feelings are our foundation because 
if feelings are my foundation and feelings are Jimmy's foundation, then for us to be in a relationship, I, I have to honor and bless everything that Jimmy wants to do because Jimmy feels like doing it. So yeah, oh, oh I just, it's so shallow. It's like, oh yeah, do that, do that. If it's good for you, it's good. If it's God for you, it's God. And he has to do the same for me. We can't actually have a real conversation about anything except just blessing each other's feelings. And we call it love. We call it, we call it compassion. But 1 Corinthians tells us this about love. It says in verse four, love is, is patient. It is. I should listen. It's kind. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Yes, beautiful. Culture would agree. This is great. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's it's not irritable, it's not resentful, but also it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. That's not love. It rejoices at the truth. And this idea that we're, we're gonna love each other and I'm just gonna rejoice at everything that you do because you feel like it. And I want you to rejoice at everything that I do because I feel like it. That's not love. That's not love. Another problem with feelings being my foundation is that my feelings are, my interpretation of my feelings are so powerfully influenced by the culture around me. Tim Keller uh, gives this example. He, he talks about how, how culture really shapes how we interpret our feelings, even though we don't realize it. And he, and he uses the example of the Anglo-Saxon man versus the modern man. And he describes this Anglo-Saxon man and he says, yeah, imagine an Anglo-Saxon man in, I don't know, 800 or something, and he's, he's walking down the dirt path and, and he, sees, he sees a man and he wants to kill him. He, he just, he sees him, the guy looks at him wrong and he's like, oh, I just, I hate that guy. And, and the moment passes and he thinks to himself, yes, that's who I am. I'm an Anglo-Saxon warrior. I'm an aggressor, I'm powerful, I'm strong. But then five minutes later, the same Anglo-Saxon warrior sees a man and he feels attracted to the man. Feels attracted, he has a feeling of attraction. And immediately he says to himself, no, 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 that's not me. That's not me, I'm an Anglo-Saxon warrior. I, 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 I hit people, I hit men, I don't, I don't, I don't love men. In that way. And then, so, so, so you fast forward to the modern man. Fast forward to the modern man in Seattle. And he's walking down the street. And he sees a man and he has a hateful, aggressive thought towards the man. And immediately he thinks to himself, oh, what? That's not me. I would never want to, I would never want to hit another, another human. That's not who I am. Five minutes later, he sees another man and he has an attractive thought towards the man. And he thinks to himself, you know, I, I wonder if I'm gay. I wonder if that's who I am. We have, we have all kinds of feelings. Feelings come and feelings go. What we may not realize is how much the interpretation of our feelings is being shaped by the culture yeah. in which we live. You're calling it your own conviction, but it's actually the conviction of a subverted culture that's interpreting the feelings that you're having. So we're, you know, this little church in Seattle, and we're trying to build a foundation that is the Word of God. So unpopular. I mean, I mean it's like, <laughs> I can't express to you. Um, 
I, I've, I've come up with ways of describing what I do. You know, people say, what do you do? And, and usually what I say is, oh, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. <laughs> and most of the time people say, yeah, <laughs> and then they don't ask. And I'm like, great, great. You, you, you didn't care. That's <laughs> great. Um, I, I, I one time, 10 years ago, I, I memorized this paragraph of like when people ask me um, what I do, I'm going to say, well, I'm the president of a nonprofit organization in Seattle that's really changing the world by helping people focus on what really matters in life and, and getting, getting rid of all the, the evil that's in our society. And be like, oh, well, that, what's it called? Mosaic. Oh, wow. That's, that's a, it's a church. Yeah, it's a church. <laughs> right, so... We do. We, we, we're, we're in this culture that is, that, is a, that is oppressive, that actually, like, if I say I believe this is the foundation, not just for me because I feel like it, but this is the right foundation for every human, it, I box myself into a, a dangerous fringe movement. It's just the reality. It's just the reality. So we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of challenges over the years. I could share for hours. I'll just share a couple. Um, you know, we've had uh, just cyclical prunings over the years, particularly in our college ministry. And, and we have college students come, and it's, it's like they, it's like we're so cool, which we are cool. We have a cool church. We have a slick building. Like, it's awesome. It's awesome. And people come because it's cool. And it's awesome. And they just assume that because, uh, you know, there are some style points that this church has, that they must be, you know, totally, uh, totally woke and totally with the, you know, uh, you're a God, I'm a God movement. And then they find out that we're not. <laughs> and they get so angry. They get so angry. And it's like, hey, we never changed. We didn't like, we were, <laughs> we've always been as clear as we could um, that this, this, is, this is what we believe. And I, I remember sitting down with one of our college, our college leaders and, and we, we sat down together and, and we'd had several conversations and this was the last one. And she said, I've decided to leave Mosaic. And I said, oh, t tell me why you're leaving. And she said, can I be honest with you? I said, yeah. She said, I'm leaving because you're a bigot. I'm leaving because you're promoting something that's ostracizing communities in our city. I'm leaving because you don't, you don't love people. And I, and I was so sad. And I, I said, gosh, that just breaks my heart. And I said, but that's not why you're leaving. She said, what? I said, well, that's not why you're leaving. I said, you're, not, you're leaving because you don't believe the Bible is the truth. That's why you're leaving. And she got so offended by that. You know, she, she bought into the, the like, oh, the real interpretation and the language change and this word, let me tell you what this word actually means, which is just... So she's explaining to me how that's not true and I, and I just wouldn't let her go. I just, look, I... It's important to me that you remember when you look back on this time a year from now that the reason that you left is because you don't believe the Bible is true. That's why you're leaving. And I'm so sad that you're leaving. It breaks my heart, but that's, that's why 
you're leaving. One of our pastors was in uh, a, a text conversation with some college students, and they were asking really heart-level questions about, about transgenderism and about homosexuality and really direct heartfelt questions, and, and our pastor was responding on text, long, heartfelt responses, trying to bring that clarity of Scripture, the foundation of Scripture, with the, the compassion of Jesus. And the, the text chain just went on for, you know, over the course of a couple of days. And what our pastor didn't realize is that this group, it was all, they, they had already decided in their heart that they were leaving our church, that they hated our church. And what they did is they, they took the text messages from our pastor and they printed them out on poster size uh, billboards. And then they put them all over the college campus with a banner that said, this is what Mosaic thinks about you. That was a bad day. That was a bad day. I, I remember there was a, uh, one of the harder ones, there was a, a, a woman um, who was serving in our Hope House. We, we had created what was called a Hope House with Unbound, and we were seeing um, women rescued out of, out of traumatic situations, out of sex slavery, out of prostitution, and they were brought into this house, and then we were doing 24-hour, like, full care walking with people, getting them doctor's appointments and counseling appointments and, and talking to them about Jesus and discipling them. And I actually ran into a woman um, last week who had went through our Hope House and she gave me the biggest hug and then introduced me to her friend. And, he, and, and she said, this is, this is the pastor of the church that saved my life. And I was like, oh gosh, so great. Um, that doesn't happen very often in Seattle. Uh, but but one thing that happened in this Hope House is that one of the, one of the women that was serving on the team um, got into a sexual relationship with one of the women who was in the house. It was so terrible. It was so terrible. And uh, we found out about it and we began to try to help and, and walk with her. But, but we also, of course, had to decide that she couldn't, she couldn't serve in the Hope House anymore. And that was very confusing to her. I think in a lot of ways it was confusing because she thought of herself as a God. I can do what I want to do. I, you can't tell me what to do. Like, I want to help these women, and I am helping them, and you can't tell me that because I've had sex with another woman in the house that I can no longer help in this house. You can't tell me that. And I was like, I can. I can tell you that. I get to tell you that. And so I told her, and, and she, had to, she had to be removed from that house, and her, her ex-husband... She had two kids, and it was such a sad story, but her ex-husband, who I'd never met, called me. And, he, and he, he called me, and he said, Andrew, I just want you to know what you've done to my ex-wife is not okay, and I, and I know where you live, and I know you have a family, and if you don't give her her role back in the Hope House, I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to hurt your family. And I, I, I just... I, I paint these pictures to, to maybe help in a place, maybe in a place like Phoenix, help you to understand that there is a spirit behind this movement that is violent and that is actually demanding submission. 
This idea that the church would stand for some truth that isn't his truth or her truth or your truth or the God's truth. This idea that the church would stand for truth that's true for all people in love. It's this core of truth packaged in this beautiful love that there's a spirit against that in this cultural age that is actually not full of compassion and everybody wins and everybody's lovely. No, it's actually a violent spirit full of hatred. So church, what do we do? What are we gonna do? Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall. How do we build something in our own lives? How do we build something as a community that can withstand the wind and the rain of our culture? And of course, just before Jesus says this, it's, it's, it's the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and the Sermon on the Mount doesn't get preached on very often. Do you know why? Because it's so intense. It's so intense. It, the Sermon on the Mount goes directly against this idea that we should all live by what we feel. Do you know what the topics, do you remember the topics that Jesus brings up in the Sermon on the Mount? I, I've given you a list. It talks about being a shining light. Don't hide. Don't keep your faith private. Be a shining light in a dark place. He talks about forgiving. We all feel like forgiving, don't we? Always. We get wronged, I immediately just feel like forgiving. Isn't that what you feel like doing? Don't lust, right? We, we, we never feel like lusting. No, 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 we, 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 never feel, we never feel like lusting. Don't divorce. Keep your word. Be a person of honor. Forgive again. <laughs> Love your enemies. You always feel like loving your enemies, don't you? <laughs> give. Now, this one we really like to give, don't we? Just how generous can I be? I just want to give, give it all away, don't we? Right? When Jimmy said that last night, we all were like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Like, for real, I feel like doing that. No. Pray fast. Give again. Don't judge people. And, and, and this is crucial, actually, that Jesus puts this here. There's a big difference between coming against the spirit behind the culture and coming against the person. I'm not called to hate anybody. I'm not called to judge anybody. That's not my role at all. I'm called to always love people. And I'm also called to hate the enemy. One time I showed a video in, in the training school here, and it was of a, it was the curriculum that was coming out in the Seattle Public School District teaching sexuality to kindergartners. And it was this book that was read by a person who in every possible way was displaying uh, that, that homosexuality is totally affirmed, that transgenderism is totally affirmed to a kindergartner. And they read through this book in the video, and this is the curriculum, and I showed it to your training school. And there was a guy in the school, I don't know if he's here, but after the video ended, he raised his hand and he said, what am I supposed to do with that? I hate that guy. <laughs> like, what do I do with the feelings that I have? Like, I can't just be like, yeah, I, I love, I love you. I love you. And I was like, oh, 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 this is it. This is it. This is it. This is it. You actually were, you were made to hate injustice. You were. They're, like, it is righteous to hate what is evil. 
And when we can rightly align our, our hatred for evil, then, then we can be free to have great love and compassion for the people in front of us. So Jesus is like, no, don't, don't judge. Just take, take your own speck out of your own eye. Pray again and then love people. What strikes me about this list is how antithetical these truths are to my feelings. These go against my feelings. And this is the list that Jesus gets to the end and he's like, these words, whoever hears these words, he's not talking about like, if you do all these things, your house will stand. That's, that's actually, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you'll build your life on my word and not on your feelings, then your house will last. Then when the rains of culture come, then when the rains of your own feelings arise, when it starts to flood from within, then if you've built your house on my word, then it will stand. I, I, I want you to understand that uh, <laughs> Seattle... I love Seattle. I, I, I love it so much. God's broken my heart for the city. And I want you to understand that we are not um, just this tiny little group of people hiding in a cave somewhere in Seattle waiting for the rain to stop. That's, that's, not, that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening at all. We, we, we've baptized 49 people this year. This year. We're, we're, we're seeing miracles regularly. I have to cut off in our staff meeting. I have to stop. Hey, okay, great. Hold, hold the rest of the testimonies because we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about some things. We have to make some plans. We're, we're, we're seeing a move of God and it's, it's not because, uh, it's not because we've acculturated We're not, seeing a, we're not seeing a move of God because, because we're laying the same foundation as the world around us. We're not trying to be like the world around us. People, people at rock bottom, they aren't looking for what our culture's providing. They're looking for a safe house they're, people at rock bottom are, they're, they're looking for a man or woman on fire. They're looking for someone who isn't living to please the people of the day, who, who doesn't have a foundation that's set on what feels good for them. People are looking for houses that will last, e even in Seattle. And so I, we are, we are, we're, oh, we're hated and et cetera, but we are, we are growing. There is life, the life of God happening as we, as we simply look back to, as we look back to what happens when the church finds itself in, a, in an oppressive culture. It's not new to be an oppressive culture. It's just maybe new to America. It's just maybe new to America. And if you're stuck in some idea that like America is and will be always a Christian nation, you're a setup for letdown. I just, I, I like, I, you know, I'm not, this is not condemning. I'll just say like the, the nation is changing. It's a, whole, it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. And you can get mad at people or you can just get mad at the enemy and love people really well. You can, you can tear up your foundation that's been laid in Jesus and try to make a, a Play-Doh foundation, but you're gonna get, wa you're gonna get washed away as soon, as soon as the rains 
as soon as the rains come. I remember calling a mentor um, of mine when I first moved to Seattle. And I was like, what do I do? What do I do? People think I'm so foolish. Nobody wants to come to church. The world looks so sexy in Seattle. There's so much money. There's so much success. What do I do? How do I preach the gospel? And the, the, my, my mentor, so gracious, he, he just said, you have to understand that the core of the Christian message isn't about coming and being promoted, being famous, being popular, being better in the world's eyes. The message of Jesus was to come and die. Come and die. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. It's, it's directly, it's a direct opposing message to express yourself. Find yourself. You do you. It's all good. It's all God. It's just not the message of Jesus. What Jesus said is, if you want to come... If you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For anyone who wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a person if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? I want to close with one thought. I, I, uh, I was inspired by this man on fire, Jimmy Seibert, many years ago. Something that he said. He said, he said, everyone wants to see a miracle, but no one wants to be in the place to need one. And, and in the church, 20 years after I heard him say that, I still find us looking for a way out of, of being in a desperate place of need. Whether looking for a way out like emotionally or relationally or just looking for a way out of giving, looking for a way out of obeying God at his word because, because often obeying God means being in a place of need. But being in that place of need is where the glory of God comes. So church, like we can't, we can't be so afraid to hold the foundation of God's word. Not only would that be disobedient to God, but church, we will be missing out on the glory that God wants to do in our generation. And I, I you know, I, just close with this story. I, <laughs> I found myself trying to help plan a church in Seattle and I found myself in a, just a desperate, desperate place. 
desperate place. We'd been on our third round of, of people leaving and hating us. We had moved 15 times in the city where we met on Sundays. And we, I was going through some personal just crisis with my family and, and with, with one of our children. And I was just at the end. How many of you like could believe me when I say like being at the end is a good place to be? It's a good place to be. And I was at the end and I, I had gotten up early that morning and I, I went up to this little office space that we were renting and I was by myself. And I just, I just began crying out to God. When I cry out to God, I literally cry out to God. God! I need you. I need you. What do I do, Father? What do I do? I'm stuck. And I just, I'm petitioning, I'm asking again the same things I'd been asking for. And I, I had this little window in my office and I'm looking out the window and I'm just crying out to God, God, where are you? God, won't you move? And as I was in my office by myself crying out to God in that way, I, I, had a, I had a vision. I've never had a vision this clear before in my life, before or since. I'm looking out the window and I, and I saw this giant, beautiful mountain. Now there's no mountain outside my window. There was no view outside that window. But I saw it, I saw a mountain and it was beautiful and it was big. And I knew that the mountain represented what was in between me and the future that God was calling me to. There was this obstacle in between and I couldn't, I couldn't get past it and I saw the mountain and it just fueled my prayer. I was like, okay. You know what Jesus said about the mountain? Call it down, cast it into the sea. And I just, I, I love to pray like that. So I was like, get out of here, you know, in Jesus name. And I'm, I'm just yelling at this mountain. It was nice to have a visual, you know, I'm, I'm yelling. I'm yelling at this, at this mountain. And as I'm crying out, I mean, it was, it was an honest moment. I was like, I'm, I'm crying out to God. As I'm crying out to God, it was as if, it was as if God came in the room. I didn't see him. I didn't see him, but he was there. And it, it was as if, I, I don't know, it was as if I felt him tap me on the shoulder. And he said, Andrew, I love you so much. And I said, thanks. <laughs> and he said, Andrew, you're, you're doing the right thing. And I just felt so good. I was like, oh, I knew it. Thank you. Thank you. And then, and then he said, but you're, you're doing it. You're doing it from the wrong perspective. And then the vision of the vision of the mountain was still there this whole time. And I, I begin floating. So now I am floating and my eyes are still fixed on the mountain and the mountain is getting, I'm like, even with the middle of it. And then I'm even with the top of it. And then I'm going above it. And then the mountain is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then, you know, I, I get to that like airplane view. Have you ever flown over a mountain where you're like looking down on this giant mountain? And as I'm looking at that mountain, that same mountain, but from a completely different view, Jesus said, do it from here. 
do it from here. I didn't have to yell anymore. I was able to look at these obstacles, these impossible mountains in my life and just say, obstacles are. I don't know if you're in this room this morning and, and some of these some of these wrestlings, some of these questions about who you are and what your life is being built on, maybe, maybe these are these are real questions for you. Like you're in a crisis point in your life where you're asking like, who am I and what am I going to build my life on? I don't know if it's people around you, your friends or your family members that you're watching begin to build their lives on, on Plato. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. But I, but I do know that he's with you. I know that he's with you. And, and he may be asking you this month or this year, he may be asking you for the rest of your life to, in, to enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings. It may be, it may be the church's role in America in a postmodern, in a post-Christian, in a whatever you want to call it, America, it may be that the church gets to experience her finest hours where we get to enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings and we get to live with the higher perspective and we get to lay a foundation that will outlast us, that will outlast us. We stand up with me. There is, a, there is a mandate on this church for the nations of the earth. And there's a mandate on this church for the greater Phoenix region. And there's a mandate on this church for the circle that you're in, your friendships, your workplace, your family. He will fulfill that mandate to the degree that we allow the foundation of his word to remain in our lives. And so I'm, I'm gonna ask you this morning if, if you're willing to just meet with him and make that decision. Maybe make it again, or maybe make it for the first time. Would you be willing this morning to be a hope reformer in your generation? Would you be willing to be one who lets the foundation of the word of God remain in your life and in the community that God's called you to be a part of? Would you look at the cost right in the face, look at the sacrifice, look at the pressure, look at the impossibility, look at the mountain, and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, make a decision to remain. So we're gonna give you just a few minutes this morning. If you 
You know, the Bible talks about building altars. If you need to come up to the front to make a moment, to, 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 to make a moment with the Lord where you're saying, I'm, I am establishing this in my life this morning, come, come up to the front. If you need to sit down and write out a promise to the Lord about the foundation for the rest of your life, then sit down and write that. If you need someone to pray for you, then ask someone to pray for you. But this morning, we're faced with the decision, Jesus is Lord. Now, will he be the foundation of your life? Will he be the foundation of your life? Let's, let's meet with him. Lord, thank you that you're here thank you that you're here, that we're standing and sitting and kneeling before you. I'm asking God that you would bring to mind areas where our foundation is being subverted, God. Areas where we're giving in, areas where we've been unwilling to die to ourselves. God, today, in this house, would you establish your foundation for the Phoenix area and unto the nations of the earth. Just meet with him. Just meet with him. Be deconstructed in all the right ways with the word of God as your foundation. Just meet with him.